This is KVRU 105.7 FM, a non-commercial, non-profit community radio station for Southeast Seattle and beyond. Hello and welcome to Who Keeps Us Safe, a podcast by Asian Americans exploring safety in our communities and beyond. This is a collaborative project of Parasol, Pacific Rim Solidarity Network, a Chinese and Taiwanese diaspora organization, and KVRU 105.7 FM, a Seattle community-based radio station. I'm Ryan, and I use they-them pronouns. I'm Jen, and I use she-her pronouns. I'm Andy, and I use he-him pronouns. I'm Alex, and I use they-them pronouns. We're all members of Parasol who co-produce this podcast. Over the next several episodes, we'll continue to explore the ideas of safety, community, and policing from the perspective of Asian Americans living in Seattle. Last episode, we delved into the topic of gentrification and how gentrification has impacted the state of community safety in Seattle's Chinatown International District. After talking to organizers at a demonstration against a new high-rise luxury apartment in the CID, we were able to get a glimpse into how gentrification and the increased policing that comes with it is increasingly displacing people of color, elders, unhoused, and poor people, while simultaneously threatening the vitality of the CID's rich culture. From these conversations, we learned that if part of safety is the feeling of home, Physically, culturally, and socially and emotionally, gentrification is actively creating unsafety for poor, unhoused, and racialized communities in the CID. While gentrification and increased policing are often justified with the argument that they will create more safety, our learnings from last week make us wonder, for whom exactly are those systems creating safety for? For this month's episode, we turn our exploration of these questions to the topic of incarceration. Much of the current work around defunding police has its roots in the prison abolition movement. For decades, organizers and revolutionaries both inside and outside of prisons and detention centers have exposed the violence of the prison system and its devastating impact on Black, Indigenous, people of color, disabled, queer, trans, immigrant, and other oppressed communities. Over the years, Parasol members have built and organized in solidarity with prisoner-led organizations like the Asian Pacific Islander Cultural Awareness Group, APICAG, and FIGHT, formerly incarcerated group Healing Together. For this episode, we reached out to members of these organizations to hear their perspectives on how the prisons and incarceration impact community safety. Our first conversation was with Tien, a formerly incarcerated member of La Resistencia, Free Them All Washington, Fight, and several other organizations. After being incarcerated at a state prison for several years, Tien was transferred to ICE custody at the Northwest Detention Center in Tacoma, where she continued to be incarcerated for over double her sentence before eventually being released. We also spoke with Andres, who is one of the founders of APICAG, which is also referred to as APICAG, and offered his own history and insight to the topics of incarceration and safety. We'll listen to Tien's story first, where she explains how her experiences have drastically changed her view of policing and prisons. So my name is Tien Ho, and pronouns is uh, she, her. I have connection with Freedom All, Fight, um, La Resistencia, and Eight Not West. It actually was my dream to become a police woman when I was growing up. I used to watch TVB Hong Kong movies, like dramas. They have a lot of shows about like police, so it's kind of really cool. But after what happened uh, with my case, my whole family totally distrust the police. Right now, I'm still on probation with both state and federal. Even just a, like... A sight of them is just a, a scary thing to see. Like when I'm driving, I see them and I just like, I just want to stop and I don't want to move anything because we don't know how they will interpret what our action is in order to, you know, if I mess up, I can, I can go to jail. 
just because of violation of probation for anything really not that important. Um, that's actually how it is in prison and in detention because when the officer is there, you just technically just don't dare to do anything because you don't want to get infraction, you're going to get in trouble. After I got released, as I said, like it's it's really scary thought to have a police come to my house, even though I know I didn't do anything wrong, I didn't violate any of their condition, but it's still, honestly, like it's just a distrust of of the system, the criminal system, immigration system. Tian's story demonstrates how Asian immigrants and refugees, many displaced by war and imperialism, lie at the intersection of both the immigration enforcement and criminal punishment system. Her encounters both outside and inside of the prison system have heavily been influenced by her immigrant status. When I was growing up, I born and live in Vietnam until I finished my ninth grade and come to America. So in Vietnam, police technically have the power of everything. So when the police come to the house or when the police stop you, you have to do whatever it takes for them to like you know let you go. For example, the experience is that my mom have a, a beauty supply shop in Vietnam, and I witnessed it myself that they came to the house and they just look over the house and then they was like they want some money and my mom cannot say no i personally heard that they said if you don't give me money i will come back multiple times until it's like a gang third thing you know like you have to pay for this protection fee so uh, my mom ended up have to give them money because she doesn't want them to keep coming back and then like finding her for tax or whatever they can find so when i was younger and i watching those kind of movies and dramas and i feel like you know we have a a right to do something it never exists in vietnam so when i come here as a student i thought it's only happened in hong kong i didn't know that we have right in america and because i never encountered with the police until you know they came to my house because they know that i speak english but i'm not born here so i didn't know my rights so they just keep asking me questions and of course it throw me back to the experience that i had in vietnam is that i keep have to answer the question and have to answer what they want to say what they want me to say and then i said what they want me to say and then in court they say that i voluntarily confess <laughs> right and then at that time i when i went to court of course i already trained by or went through with the lawyer and know what my fifth amendment fourth amendment is but at the moment that they were interrogating me i didn't know what interrogate even means right after they interrogated me i just end up confessed and just voluntarily saying it my husband was also there and we both witnessed it experienced it and we would turn around we look at each other we're like how can they turn around and use my words against me that is what totally changed our perception about police I speak English, but at the time, I doesn't speak that well because I I've surrounded my family and we speak Vietnamese and Mandarin. So my English wasn't that good. After I've been in prison and in detention, my English getting better because I've been, you know, I have to speak it every day. Um, when we went to court, the judge actually said my English very well, so I must have known my right. And that is, I'm I'm surprised because when I was in prison, I kind of really pissed off, and I actually contacting several uh, government agency that supported immigrants. There's a department that educating immigrants about English. They provide English class. They provide you know housing, a food stamp, whatever assistance you need. And I specifically send them a letter, and I was like, Do you guys teach immigrants who come here their Fourth Amendment and Fifth Amendment? And they say no. And the funny thing is that even American born here don't even know their rights. So I'm kind of surprised at what, you know, was assumed what I should be known. And I told them I didn't. And it still said that I, you know, they still assumed that I knew. Yeah, it's just, it's totally changed me, my family, all perception, all about America, all about what we thought America is and what this country should be protecting us and welcome immigrants and, you know, opportunities it become totally opposite. I think until people experience it, until people actually see it with their eyes, they actually don't think this happened. Tian also described the specific and discriminatory treatment that immigrants receive within DOC prisons. I don't think that they protect us 
particularly uh, API communities, because API people that incarcerated, technically we have no voice. And when we speak up, we become like the target. For example, when I fight with them over program for education that I want to enroll into school, they make it so hard for me to not able to go to school until I have to cite with the policy, their own policy, in order to get into the school that just seems to be, you know, normal for everyone else to be able to join, but not us. It doesn't seem like in any system um, that we ever be protected, including immigration. You know, immigration is supposed to be fair for anyone that in the system, but it doesn't. So my thought is that Asian people, API people, uh, when they deal with the police, they need to know their rights. They need to know what to do when they encounter with the police, even though just a traffic stop can make a big deal out of. Yeah, just understand the law and study the law. And I think another important thing is that have the connection with the community because, you know, when you have connection, they seem to back off if you do have the connection with the community. Having this connection with the community and the potential organizing strength for API incarcerated people was a driving force behind Andres's work with APICAG. Andres Pacificar, better known as Andy, and my pronouns are he, him. And I actually founded the APICAG back in 1994, which is like probably a uh, two-year battle. <laughs> and then I work for the Freedom Project right now, but that's actually uh, pretty recent. I was working for the YMCA's Alive and Free program for about the last four and a half years prior to Freedom Project. So doing youth work mostly in the last couple of years. And so just now transitioning into the Freedom Project. The idea started about 1992. I was incarcerated at the Clallam Bay, and I was probably one of two API prisoners there at the time. And then within about a six-month period, we just got this massive influx of API youth. The early 90s was a really bad time in the community of Seattle with a lot of gang violence. And so we were getting a lot of API youth. So sitting around talking to them one day about a news story that we'd seen on TV about another API organization in a different institution, uh, a young man asked me, um, why don't we have one of those? And I thought, well, that's a good question, you know. That was the beginning of, of a campaign, fighting with the administration, who was very, very racist. And when we submitted our initial proposal, it was like flat no. It was a two-year battle of grievances, letters to headquarters and all that. And not until then-state representative Gary Locke interceded for us to the secretary of the Department of Corrections did we even get approved. But I don't know if people are familiar with Gary Locke. He went on to become the first Chinese governor of Washington State and then on to President Obama's uh, administration. So yeah, we were grateful to that. So the reason why we started it was the unique needs of API prisoners at the time, because the administration was really culturally ignorant. They didn't even know about the historical conflicts between some of the youth and the various uh, uh, ethnicities within the API. It was the reason for our obstacles and because of language barriers and things like that and young men trying to acclimate into the prison culture. They had no assistance and that's why we tried to start it because they were being targeted for infractions and being labeled as troublemakers and stuff when it really wasn't the case. So we wanted to do things like translation do uh, the basic orientations upon arrival which they do for all the other ethnicities ours didn't get no special attention and you know items on the canteen you know stuff like that so that's the campaigns we want to do to represent them in disciplinary hearings because you know that was a bad scene right there but the main the main main purpose i saw in the group was to give the young men the benefit of positive accomplishment and some area of focus outside of gang mentality and so yeah that was the beginning and that's how it started the immigration laws whereas that in the southeast asian communities they weren't deporting cambodians laotians vietnamese like that because of the lack of treaties that the u.s had with them the genocide survivors and the war or the war survivors didn't have to worry about being deported and stuff because they basically came here at young ages and their parents have been fleeing genocide and war so in 1996, we had what was called the 1996 laws instituted by President Clinton at the time, and it made them deportable. And an MOU was reached with the government of Cambodia, and all of a sudden they were uh, deportable. 
And so what happened was, because of these 1996 laws, I think it was the ADEPA and the IIRIA, something like that, which stand for the Anti-Death Penalty, and shoot, it's been so long, I forgot. Anyways, those were the two laws that significantly impacted Southeast Asians and particularly Cambodians, because what it did was gave ICE the authority to define aggravated felony. Anything is like possession of marijuana was an aggravated felony to ICE. So like basically any type of contact with the justice system was making these men and women deportable. And what happened was because of being new to the United States, you know, this was how the gangs formed. Different cultures, you know, were like the new targets for people in schools and being picked on. And so naturally they gathered together in survival and, and just protection of each other. They were initially came to the United States. They were like distributed like in some of the poorest communities throughout the United States. And so that was a gang culture that they were dropped into. That's how the problem began, I, I would say. So what happened was these young men that were had those felony convictions back there like in 96 or, or pre-96, like my friend here, and he was um, sentenced in 1990. The laws changed in 1996 that made them deportable, but other people were getting out and getting their lives together, started buying houses, starting families, owning businesses, you know, and just living the life that they always wanted. But these past convictions came into effect and they automatically became deportable. And so what that did was start tearing families apart, just ripping sometimes the sole breadwinners of the family away from their family. That's why I've always viewed deportation as a violent act committed by our system of government in the United States. At the time of her arrest, Tian was not lucky enough to have API community support on the inside and was directly affected by the laws that Andrus mentioned. Even after serving her sentence and being released from the DOC, immigrants like Tian with a call to be detained by ICE, otherwise known as an ICE detainer, are often directly transferred to the Northwest Detention Center, a private ICE detention facility located in Tacoma. The DOC ICE pipeline, which is when people get conviction, they went to prison and then they served their time in prison at the date of their release, uh, either early release date or maximum release date, which is your, you know, you did your maximum time. You're going to get any good time off. Then ICE will come to the prison and pick you up. So when ICE come and pick you up, what happened was they come at five o'clock and then the day before they come, DOC will say, you can't bring in thing which is a lie you can't bring stuff you can't bring your food you can bring whatever you want you can bring everything all your properties from prison because technically it's already screened by the prison so most of the time it will be approved to have it in ice detention the only thing they don't allow is electronic so that transfer they will come pick you at five o'clock in the morning and then they'll take you to ice where in washington is uh at the tacoma so they will let you sit there in the waiting room for like hours uh 5 a.m so you get there at seven you don't get actually check in until 4 p.m. You don't actually go into a pot until 9 at 11. It's a, it's a long process. But what's happening is that in Washington State, we're trying to stop this transfer because Washington have a law that passed, I believe last year, was keep Washington working law that not allowing DOC to have any connection with ICE. However, DOC end up become a little loophole. So yes, prison can still contacting ICE, and which they do, and then tell ICE that this person is not American and ICE will come and pick them up. So we're trying to stop that because first of all, right now with COVID, the high amount and high cases in the prison will cause more health risk to everyone. For the transfer, when you get transferred to ICE, you don't even know if ICE gonna take care of you. So when you're in ICE detention, what they do is this. So they will put you in segregation, what they call it quarantine, for 14 days. You only shower every other day, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, early in the morning, 5 o'clock or 7 o'clock. You don't shower, you're done. So we're stinking for a couple of days. <laughs> and then when you go to medical and ICE, you don't actually get the help that you need. For example, there are so many times that I have to go to medical and they just said, okay, just drink some water or like take some meds or whatever. It's technically a health risk for the inmate from DOC, the detainees in ICE detention and the community, the Washingtonian itself. 
because when ICE release people, they don't tell the community, hey, these people have COVID, but they got released. They don't give them a place to quarantine. They don't give them a warning that, you know, the community surrounding who are going to live right next to them to say, hey, they have COVID, so you need to take care of yourself. They just release them on the street, which is great if they release them, right? But also, imagine they call it a pod of COVID, all positive, and all the waste going out is transfer, right? COVID transfer through everything. So then it's get rest to the community. If you don't care about immigrants, fine. You don't care about incarcerated people, fine. But care about yourself, right? Because who knows if they're right next to you? <laughs> This system of transfers is what organizers have titled the DOC to ICE pipeline. According to Washington State's Keep Washington Working Law, collaboration between law enforcement and ICE is illegal, with the exception of DOC facilities. This loophole has resulted in the current situation at NWDC, in which a large number of immigrant detainees are in fact transfers from DOC prisons. This comes despite the recently passed Bill HB 1090, which bans private for-profit prisons in Washington and will lead to the closure of the NWDC in 2025. However, until the contract ends, Washington State still continues with the transfers. Yeah, we did have a clear answer from Governor Inslee that they don't care about immigrants, technically. And I did tell them that I was like, why do you guys are on the news and said, we love immigrants, right? When COVID just started, right? Oh, they have a new law about against Asian American. Well, Asian is still, still immigrants. Why not supporting all of us? But they do pick and choose. And he did say that if no legislator come out and initiate the stop, the pipeline, he would not initiate it. I'm kind of really sad with him because I saw him a lot on the news about immigrants and I was like, cool, he's supporting us, you know, but no. But actually the state is trying to be like California, but it's not, right? California really go hard on immigrants and they do support immigrants. And I wish that Washington can be like that. So hopefully one day, uh, hopefully we'll have a different view, different governor, who knows. <laughs> Everything is just a hope. Even with Biden, Harris, you know, we thought that they're gonna supporting us, and and what happened? Who knows? Who knows what's gonna happen after this four years? I don't think they have been doing what they had said at the campaign. So a lot of hope, but a lot of unanswered hope. <laughs> So we're trying to stop this pine line. However, Governor Inslee had office a representative, which we talked to, and they said immigrants who have conviction is more dangerous than immigrant itself, which true it might not be. I told them my story. And I said, are you sure? Because I have conviction. I serve my time. I serve double my time in ICE. And when I get out, I never be a burden to anyone. I never be a burden to community. I never do anything to violate any of your condition. So how do you tell the community that I am more dangerous than you? And they said, well, we don't care. We only support immigrants, but we don't support people who have conviction. But people who have conviction also live here in Washington State. And then when they build to get a job, they do support you guys by paying tax. Why not supporting all immigrants, right? If he say he support immigrants, he doesn't specifically on the news said, I don't support people who have conviction. He just said he support immigrants. And, you know, we're going to be like California. We're going to have a sanctuary state. But how is that sanctuary state when you don't care about immigrants and you supporting ICE and say, hey, they have they have no certificate of uh, U.S. citizenship. So just pick them up and just deal with them. You know, we need to stop this pipeline because when people don't have have to go through ICE detention, don't have to go through the system, they can reunite with their family. It's not easy to be in prison. And I, I understand that who never have a connection with prisoner or family member who been to prison or never care about in prisoner itself will say that, well, they commit a crime, so they deserve that. But do they deserve to separate from their family for the rest of their life? Because once you get deported from this country, you forever will never be able to go back. Even though I say yes after 10 years but no they will never approve that visa or whatever you trying to petition 
why not supporting immigrants, all immigrants? If we can stop this pipeline and the people who have to go immigration through the court outside of the detention will be much better because that way they can support the community. They can prove to the community that they have changed. They have tried to better themselves. And I think everyone should have a chance to write what they did wrong. Let's say when your kid does something wrong, do they? Do you just say, I, I disown you? Are you going to forgive them and say, try again? So why can't we do that to other people? If you have kids, if your kid go to prison, you will be in the same system. You will be in the same situation as us. You know, I always taught that do whatever it takes so that you don't have to be bad to anyone. So even just your support will help because when you support immigrants in any way, every immigrants, it will help the community, it will help the society, it will help the economy because we do work, we do pay tax. <laughs> it will help everyone surrounding us. Why do we have to let people go through that instead of being legally and supporting them? Talking with Andres and Tien really helped us to further understand the logic behind the structures and systems that failed them and continue to restrict their ability to live freely. Inslee and Keep Washington Working's loophole suggests that although quote-unquote good immigrants deserve support, supposedly bad immigrants still need to be locked up for the purpose of public safety. But as we've heard through our conversations about how BIPOC, LGBTQ, working class, unhoused, and disabled people are targeted and harmed by policing, gentrification, and the immigrant and criminal punishment system, the question became utterly clear. What is crime? And what are its root causes? Do prisons or detention centers really prevent crime or create safety? According to Maryam Kaba, an organizer and educator in New York City, the idea of predators and dangerous people that Inslee himself evoked are, quote, complicated by the conditions our society enforces, social and economic conditions that we know generate crime and despair. Communities whose needs are met are not rife with crimes of desperation, whereas struggling communities are. And people from communities that are highly criminalized by our racist system are far more likely to be thrust into the carceral system. By reframing the definition of crime, we can clearly unravel how, unlike what Inslee and Keep Washington Working's loophole suggest, there are no good and bad immigrants. Instead, through enslavement, colonization, redlining, gentrification, and so on, society has created the conditions for crime and criminalization. Kaba further explains, quote, Politicians routinely feign ignorance to these dynamics, presenting tough-on-crime agendas that would enhance prison sentences as a solution to the harms society generates. Because if politicians acknowledge that most criminalized harms are rooted in social and economic inequalities, they would be expected to address those inequities, which most refuse to do." Unquote. Although a lot of people assume that incarceration for supposedly dangerous people in society keeps others safe, a lot of facts in history point to the opposite. Kaba writes that, quote, Increasing rates of incarceration have a minimal impact on crime rates. Research and common sense suggest that economic precarity is correlated with higher crime rates. Moreover, crime and harm are not synonymous. All that is criminalized isn't harmful, and all harm isn't necessarily criminalized. For example, Wage theft by employers isn't generally criminalized, but it is definitely harmful. Unquote. So returning back to Tian and the DOC to ICE pipeline, the narrative that good immigrants are deserving of basic human rights, while others are not, continues to reinforce the idea that the only way to address crime and harm is to put more people in jail or detention. These ideas will not help create safety. Instead, they'll continue to justify the oppression of the most marginalized of immigrants, particularly black immigrants, and those who are already susceptible to criminalization by the police and are thus most likely to be funneled from the criminal system into the detention and deportation system. It's clear we need to reject the good-bad immigrant narrative. This means supporting and listening to all immigrants, including Tian, and other formerly and currently incarcerated folks, folks who really understand the realities and conditions of these systems.
turn our focus back on APICAG, which is the Asian Pacific Islander Cultural Awareness Group and is made up of incarcerated, formerly incarcerated folks and supporters. APICAG supports, educates, and empowers API folks inside prisons and also prepares them for reentry after release. We've already heard a little bit from the founder, Andres, and we'll continue our conversation with him to hear more about the work that folks are doing to support API incarcerated people, as well as their organizing efforts. We also had the opportunity to speak with Eric, a currently incarcerated member of APICAG, and chat with him about his learnings around policing and prisons through his organizing and life experiences. Alex and I called Eric on the phone to record the conversation. Eric, can you say, like, a couple sentences? Well, my name is Eric Michael Bacola. I'm a DLC number 760310. I am of Filipino descent. My mother's Filipino. My father's Scandinavian. I'm connected to API through since my conception. But in 1997, I was transferred to Walla Walla, and that's where I first became a member of the API group. And I've been everything from a common member to a member of the executive board. I've helped organize banquets, events, meetings, fundraising, cooking, unification, solidarity during difficult moments. Um, there's been a lot of activity that I've done throughout the years with the API group, both from the shadows and in the front. I'm currently the vice president here at the Washington Correction Center of the API group, and I'm also a legislative member for the API and the DPC groups. And as a legislative committee member, we meet with prosecutors, we meet with lawmakers. Our aim is towards criminal justice reform, supporting laws that would be implemented that would benefit the majority of us here. I myself was 18. I've been in prison close to 26 years. I have 14 years left. Hey, Eric, it's Jen. Um, I'm curious to know if you have always had the stance and knowledge about police and safety, or has that um, evolved over the years? And if it has, if you could kind of speak to that a little bit. Growing up, policing wasn't always the, a favorable thing amongst me and my peers, obviously, because we were probably weren't the best people out there. But even when we weren't doing anything wrong, we would get harassed. Police were kind of demonized amongst us. But over the years, watching the news, being in prison, and seeing how things are, and feeling how things are also in here, because there's policing in here also. It's just, it's, it's tyrannical. It's, it's all, I've always had the same general feeling, kind of maybe over the past few years currently. It's, it's been, my feelings have probably grown stronger. Watching the news, seeing what's happening out there, people getting killed, people getting abused. I don't hate police. I just want to put that up on the record. It's nothing like that. It's just, it's too much. It's, 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 not, it's not necessary. It leads to the destruction of our communities. It doesn't lead to any kind of real progressive buildup or positivity. It's, it's all it's more negative than anything from what I've, I've experienced. similarly of your feelings but also if your understanding of like organizing or like the way the world is or how we get to liberation you know any learnings around that that you'd like to share well yeah that's one question how to, uh, what are ways to make policing unnecessary in our communities or to make them redundant that's a pretty profound way that i think we can decrease policing in our neighborhoods we take care of our neighborhoods we take care of ourselves we take care of our, our families and our communities there won't be no need for so much policing so if you make our communities healthy and whole the disease can't enter so to speak so make them redundant there won't be no need for them we won't have them yeah i have 60 seconds remaining do you want to call back is that possible yeah i can call back okay cool well, if you know the history of mass incarceration, you know, it goes back to the slave days. And so prison is now just another form of, I, I would say, slavery. The prison industrial complex targets minority and people of color from the very beginning. People of color in prison are the predominant populations 
the prison system just works to just keep them in a box. I, I mean, I don't know. I don't know the term or how you would say that. Warehousing and, and all those terms. It really serves no purpose other than destroying families and communities. So I know what it does, how it works, how they accomplish all that is like a long history of their manipulations. It's a, one of the biggest generators of money. It just has been a destroyer of communities, you know. I can't see them accomplishing anything, anything good other than, you know, just warehousing people. But the good thing about it right now is people are starting to know and recognize that. And for the first time, our lived experiences, such as the Freedom Project staff and other community organizations, those lived experiences are now becoming valuable because now they know and understand that we're, we're part of the solution. We have the answers to clean up the mess that they made because that's what we're doing in this community is we're cleaning up or at least attempting to clean up this mess that they made by incarcerating people creating you know crimes of poverty and so people don't talk about that much but they're starting to understand because our voice is getting a little bit louder Eric also shared more with us about the specific work that he is doing around legislation and criminal justice reform. We listened as he explained the current bills and demands that APICAG is supporting and how they would directly impact his own situation, as well as the stories of many other incarcerated friends. The main one is, is a third off, a third off all across the board for all offenses. That was proposed last year and had strong support, however, at the last minute, it was it was shelved. The, the bill was shelved along with the rest of them. But that was the main bill. It would not only bring a bunch of hope to all of us, but it, it, would, it would cause a relief for a multitude of people. To where, if they were really interested in criminal justice reform or reducing the prison population with the pandemic, and just in general, because it's just overpopulated and it's it's not really conducive to anything. Rehabilitative or good. That was so. If you had 30 years for, let's say, uh, a robbery or assault one, you do 20. That would be a third off. They'd take 10 years off. So that would be no questions asked. A third off would be there unless you were able to, unless you lost that time for, for bad behavior or didn't comply with any rules or take the classes that were necessary. You'd be granted that third off. Uh, the other, probably the next most important one was running gun enhancements concurrent. As of right now, I'll just use my own case as an example. I have three gun enhancements. Five years times three, so that's 15 years of flat time. If they were to run those in concurrent, it'd only be five years rather than 15. And then with the third off, I'd still get the third off that five years. So it would dramatically reduce my sentence. And these hard, hard time for armed crime acts that passed in the mid-90s and early 90s is proving more detrimental than, than useful for, for criminal justice. It's just warehousing us, just keeping us here above. And in, in a lot of cases, these gun enhancements, they, they're more extensive than the sentences for the underlying crimes themselves. For example, if a guy has a robbery, he has 12 years, he has 12 years for the robberies, but he has 40 years of gun enhancements alone. So that's why that would be a good law to pass. Another one is for juvenile points. A lot of us have committed crimes as juveniles, and for those crimes or those convictions, they're counted as points when we, when we enter the adult system. How are those points for, are from crimes when we were juveniles? And with emerging adult brain science, there was no way for us to foresee being convicted or accepting a plea bargain as a juvenile would result in those points being used against us as adults. So by removing those juvenile points, it would cause us to be resentenced on the adult crimes we are currently in for. It would also, the release that would involve early release or reduced sentence. And emerging adult science, that one involves 18 to 21, I believe, or maybe to 25. I think 21 would be the safe number right now because there's a new case that just came out not long ago called Bartholomew Monsky. Previously, it was under 18, which was the Miller 6. They were looking to extend the parts of clemency board so that they would have to consider that as part of the Miller 6 almost. That's still pending also. When you're under 21, you're still pretty much an adolescent. I mean, you're a kid. You're not, your brain's not fully formed. You're not fully aware of what you're doing or, or the consequences. Peer pressure, impulsiveness, everything that goes with being immature and not, not having the full capacity to know right from wrong or deal with the situations you're in or your upbringing, whatever. But that's an important lot. I think those are pretty much the main ones I would ask everyone to help support because those, those, those probably have the most effect on all of us that have long periods of time and have been in here for long periods of time. Thinking about the DOC to ICE pipeline and the circumstances that have led APICAG to make these demands, 
it's clear that the current criminal justice systems are not creating safety or transformation. If prisons and policing aren't the place for safety, what does real safety look and feel like to you? Safety, safety would be just feeling secure in your own home, your own neighborhood, your own community, without feeling being preyed upon or, or being threatened with some sort of punishment or treatment. Safety to me is kind of just being left alone, as long as you're not doing anything wrong. Just, there doesn't need to be so much surveillance, there doesn't need to be so much harassment, profiling, just let people be. The solutions are community-based. They have to give the community more inclusion to find the problems. I think that like changing the legal system is a good starting place. And I think some of the main things about violence in the community, because incarceration is not stopping that because they haven't looked at the root causes and where that violence actually started from. So that's a conversation that we're really uh, proactive in, in trying to continue. People would never think that gang violence is rooted in, in poverty, but it really is. It's not politically, you know, uh, valuable to have that conversation because most politicians are really scared to take that subject on. And so it's back to us cleaning up the mess they make. And I just have to say that I think those of us that have lived experiences, you know, and just being API or BIPOC for that matter, just being that, you know, gives you that experience we've been oppressed for so long. I believe that amongst the API group, the way to make police redundant within our own communities is to let us handle our own. Let us handle our own, let us, let us mentor our youth, give us control over our own resources rather than an outside source controlling everything, thinking they know what's best for us. Let us decide what's best for us. For instance, maybe a single mother has a wayward child who's starting to turn to the streets and sell drugs or join the gangs or whatever. You know, have it to where we have a group of credible messengers that can reach that person I think the idea of not having police in America is really complicated answer because first of all, America has Second Amendment right, which is right to bear arms, which means that anyone can have a gun and the firearms with them. So I'm not sure how we can policing ourselves and protecting our people. It's different in Asia, you know. In Asia, neighbor know everything about your house, everything, your business. So if anything happens, neighbor are going to come over and, you know, help you. But in America, I don't see neighbor come out and help anyone. So I'm not sure how to be safe with police and without the police. I did see on the news somewhere that there is a county that actually policing themselves, uh, I think in Texas, and they don't need any police, and they do it very well. I think it's just that if the community, if the neighborhood come together and agree to protect each other, you know, that will be good. Um, but it's kind of odd of how our neighborhood is working in America. <laughs> <laughs> uh, like uh, if there's a fire alarm going on and they just let it go on <laughs> they don't come over and see if your house okay if your house is burning you know it's gonna affect them so the community have to come together and that how we can policing ourselves without the police but like i say policing themselves police themselves is useless anyway <laughs> I used to read a lot of Buddhist book in prison. You know, people don't think that what affect you is affecting me because, you know, what you do affect me and what I do affect the next person. And it will come back to you because we all affecting each other. You know, why would we hate on each other and then keep hating and hating? Hating is just not a good action against anyone. The 
The question of how we create safety is still a hard one to answer, so it's important that we're wrestling with it and figuring it out together. Tien, Andres, and Eric remind us that this question of safety can start with organizing, not only to dismantle harmful systems of incarceration, criminalization, detention, and deportation, but also from creating new systems and relationships that allow us to really care for and support each other. To close out the conversations, we asked everyone for their thoughts on ways our listeners could support their work, as well as how to support folks currently and formerly incarcerated. I really enjoyed this interview over a lot of others because you guys asked relevant questions. Uh, I mean, funding is always one of the biggest hurdles and obstacles for the work and, you know, for community. And then, like, the word abolition, I, I just want to add this. The word abolition, just people don't understand what it really truly means. And when we talk about abolishing prison, people think, oh, oh we just want to let the world, you know, run into anarchy. And that's not true. Incarceration has served, the prison industrial complex has not served anything productive at all. And it's just grown into an agency of destruction. I would just hope that people in the community can, you know, at least do their own research and see that abolition isn't a bad word and dismantling the prison industrial complex doesn't mean that we just want people to not be accountable. Yeah, there's um, a lot of benefit that can come from tearing that down. It needs to be totally dismantled. Let's start from the ground up. A lot of the answers are there in our community. And people like you guys doing this work and just uh, such a broad array of other people doing the work and that are passionate about representing their community. But funding, 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 you know, they throw money away in so many other ways that doesn't serve any purpose, you know. Why don't they, you know, they really care about making the changes that they claim they want, you know. Do it in a way that, that speaks to that. So supporting the Regional Peacekeeping Collective, it would be my ask. And to help Freedom Project and Progress Pushers and, and those organizations, help them raise the money to continue the work. Put your money where your mouth is, City of Seattle, you know, that's what I say. It's kind of hard to transition back, but a lot of people are really unfortunate. Like, I've been seeing a lot of my friends that they have to wait for a housing voucher before it released. And there's a lady from Philippines. She didn't able to get out early on her early release date because she doesn't have an address that approved. So she have to stay there another three months or six months. It's kind of really sad that she have to go through that. Plus, they have to look for job. My friends who got out of detention with me, she couldn't get a job because of her criminal record. She was like, I almost got three jobs, but I couldn't because they end up finding out I have a record. But she did list it on her application. So a lot of barrier against incarcerated people that seem to be nothing to normal people, but is a big deal to us because... For example, I cannot get a job because I have I don't have a work permit, but then I still have to pay for my probation fee. So I asked them, how do you expect me to pay when I can't get a job? And then she was like, well, you still have to pay, right? I would say maybe just ask them what they need. A lot of people... They don't know where to find help. They don't know who to ask for help. And because when you're incarcerated, you're not supposed to ask for help. When you ask for help, that's when you got punished for it. So a lot of people are scared to ask for help. And a lot of people who don't have family, they, they kind of lost. For example, immigrants who get out of detention, they don't know English. They don't know what to do. If there's no organization that's helping them, like A-Not West or like Letter Resistentia, they get lost. So when I was in prison, I complete a paralegal certificate program. And I work with a few lawyers like Serial uh, Clemency Projects, uh, NERP, uh, Northwest Immigrant Rights Projects. So I'm hoping that those can help other people to be able to help themselves so that they can reunite with the family. So, you know, when people that have their kid, their friends, their brother, sister, whoever, that go through the system and they don't know what to help, I hope that they'll reach out to us and reach out to me and then I can help them whatever I can. You 
wants to protest and demonstrate, and that's, I think that's a great way to gain attention and awareness. However, I think something that may be just as effective, if not more, if everyone emailed their local representatives and told them they support these laws that are pending in the legislature right now, and, and voice their opinions in emails to, to all their local representatives, because politicians are lawmakers, they're, they hold an elective office. So if their constituents voice their concerns and their opinions through emails, not just phone calls, not just demonstrations. Those emails become public record. They'll accumulate numbers and it'll be more accountable for the politicians. I think that would be a good tactic, persuading them to pass these bills and these laws. I think it would be effective. To reiterate, Eric named that you should contact your representatives about the following bills. SB 5285, which expands earned release time to one-third of the length of a sentence. HB 1413, a fresh start for criminalized youth, which prohibits the use of juvenile points, a system in which juvenile crimes are used to automatically give people longer sentences as adults. And HB 1344, second chances for people incarcerated as young adults, which allows anyone given a 15 plus year sentence before the age of 25 to go before the parole board. Although we still have a lot of questions, talking to Andrus, Eric, and Tien really helped us understand more about how prisons and detention centers impact our communities. Firstly, from outside to the inside of prisons and detention centers, these systems of criminal justice do not keep the majority of API communities safe, particularly poor, working class, and immigrant and refugee communities. Secondly, folks lying at the intersection of the criminal system and the immigration enforcement system oftentimes receive even more punishment and discrimination with prison as well as after they are released. We see this through the targeting and criminalization of undocumented immigrants by police, lack of language access, and accessible knowledge about their rights in the face of police, the transfers of folks from DOC to ICE, and more. Thirdly, it's vital to our community safety efforts for folks on the outside to listen to and support folks on the inside. Incarcerated and formerly incarcerated folks deserve our utmost support, and when we listen to their experiences and their organizing efforts, then we can better see the realities of these institutions and how they do not actually promote community safety. We need their voices at the table in our collective efforts to create healthy systems and dismantle these violent institutions so that everyone can be safe. Lastly, we learned from our conversations that one way to build safety is to take action against systems that are creating violence and harm among marginalized communities. We invite you to respond to the calls to action that Eric and Tian lifted up, whether it's engaging with an ask on Free Them All, Fight, APICAG's social media pages, emailing your representatives about the bills that Eric discussed, or finding other ways to support incarcerated folks around you. I'm thankful for your guys' work. You know, the more people that can listen to what you guys are trying to do, the more support uh, answers can be found, you know? Come together, support all API community. Just look at us as humans. We're the winner of the way. Don't give up. Just believe you can achieve. It will happen. Keep your hopes up. Stay in the we should shut them all down? <laughs> yeah. We'd like to thank Andres, Eric, and Tien for offering their stories and insight, APICAG, Fight, and JM for the coordination, KVRU 105.7 FM for their technical support, and Parasol for supporting us in the creation of this podcast. See you all next time on Who Keeps Us Safe. The podcast hosts for this episode, Alex, Jen, Andy, and Ryan, are a small team of local community organizers who also produce and edit the episodes for Who Keeps Us Safe. Special thanks for music written by Andy and Alex, and translation support by Mathilde, Chelsea, and Alex.